to lie to the testimony if they do not speak according to this word they have no light of dawn distress and hungry they will roam through the land when they are famished they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their god then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness nevertheless there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot is used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to read another scripture passage. This is about Ahaz. He was king of Israel around the time that Isaiah was writing uh, this prophecy. And, and Ahaz, Ahaz displays some of the, the darkness and the gloom that the people of Israel were, were living within. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. The Edomites had again come and attacked Judah and carried away prisoners. While the Philistines had raided towns in the foothills and in the Negev of Judah, they captured and occupied Beth Shemesh, Ijalan, and Gedaroth, as well as Soko, Timnah, and Gimzo with their surrounding villages. The Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. Tiglath-Pilazar, king of Assyria, came to him, but he gave him trouble instead of help. Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and from the officials and presented them to the king of Assyria. But that did not help him. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him, for he thought, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and cut them in pieces 
He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. It ends shortly after that for Ahaz. Simply says he was buried in the city of David, but not with the other kings. You imagine living under a leader like that? A, a leader who was called and, and blessed. And, and if you read the Psalms, there's a number of coronation Psalms. And those Psalms all have this common theme of, Lord, bless the king so that the king may take care of the poor and the needy in the land and your name may be made known to the ends of the earth. And then there's Ahaz. And instead of making God's name known to the ends of the earth, Ahaz ran to the ends of the earth to find another God. And instead of taking care of the poor and the needy, Ahaz robbed the people of every resource they had and gave it away to other kings to try and protect the people, but more, more than that, to protect himself. Instead of leading the people to God and, and being the one who led the celebrations to the temple and who, who honored the feasts each time they came around during the year, Ahaz was the one who barred the temple. He shut the doors of the temple. He closed the people's opportunity to worship God and seek God together. It's as if he said to the people, I'm not going to worship this God and neither are you you will have no opportunity to come before the Lord your God. We are forsaking him. Darkness. Gloom. Utter darkness. This is what the people are living under. I listen to this story and I wonder how the people's trust in God must have been shaken during that time. I mean, God appoints the leaders. God puts these people in place. God had allowed Ahaz to become king. And he had done this. Time and again, the prophets talked about God would raise up leaders for the people of Israel. All the way back to Moses, there were these promises from God that he would put people in place who would lead them well. And yet here they are living under Ahaz. And Ahaz wasn't the first. He was one of, of many in a row who, who turned the people from God, who committed wickedness and, and were said to be unfaithful to the Lord and added insult to the Lord. Only imagine the people. How do we trust you, God? Are you going to be faithful to your word? Are you really going to be the good God you claim to be? And if so, then why these leaders, again and again and again, who oppress us? Why, Lord? Where are you? How can I trust you to be good and faithful? when the people who are supposed to lead us to you are not.
much as we complain about one political party or another, we do live in a country and in a continent where there is a lot of freedom and there is a lot of provision from our leaders for us to be able to worship God and to seek God freely. It's not true for everyone in the world. But we do seem to be a people who come again and again to places where we have a difficult time trusting God. We have a difficult time turning to God and saying, yes, I trust you. And it may have been because we've gone through a a horrendous, painful experience in our life. Losing a loved one. And our hearts are ripped open and, and trusting God seems like the last thing we can do. may be similar to the people of Israel, though, that the people who were supposed to attend to us, the people who were supposed to lead us towards Christ, were the very ones who turned us away from him, that the people who were supposed to be our parents, our spiritual leaders, our our church leaders, are the ones who inflicted wounds upon us. The idea of us trusting a good and faithful God seems like a foreign concept. How can we trust you, God, when our parents don't even follow you? Or our parents speak one thing and do a completely different other. How can we trust you, God, when our our hearts are ripped open because we've made these promises before you and our kids have turned and walked away? Where are you? How can we trust you when the religious leaders and church leaders have consistently spoken ill of us or done things that have just not lined up with your word the saying's been said in a number of different variations and attributed to Gandhi and to a whole bunch of other people but but the idea the basic idea being that that I'd believe in Jesus Christ if only it weren't for Christians. The people who are supposed to lead the world towards Christ end up being the people who because of their bickering and their anger and their selfishness and the way they fail to love one another push people away from God. There are some of us gathered here today who who that Pain is simply an idea that we're aware of in other people's lives and there are some of us who are gathered here today that that pain is deep in our own hearts. And we desperately want to believe the good news that God loves us and that God is watching over us and that God's walking with us. And and this Christmas season where we celebrate joy to the world, where is that joy? How can I have joy? Because every bit of trust that I had has been ripped and shattered and broken. Life's just not turned out the way I thought it would. God seems to be absent. And so we come to church and we go through the motions, but, but the songs never get into our hearts. And in a season where the west, rest of the world seems to be happy and joyful, we feel heavier and heavier and heavier. Lord, 
I can't even think about joy until I know I can trust you. It's that type of context. These words from Isaiah come, and they are ridiculous-sounding words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When you're living under a king who's abusive, your prayer becomes, Lord, take that king away and give us a new king. But the history of Israel had been a time and time again that whichever king came in place ended up being more violent and more evil than the one before. And so this, this good news that Isaiah is giving to the people is that there's going to be a child who's born. Now think about how ridiculous that is. The kings who have been, been kind of pillaging and, and ravaging everybody, for a child to be born to be the good news, they're going to have to wait years before that child grows up. There is in this promise an assurance. I'm already at work doing something something you may not understand and you may not see, a child will be born. There's something in biblical prophecy called the dual horizon. And in one sense, the first horizon of biblical prophecy is what the prophets are saying to the people of their day and their immediate context. And the second horizon is what the Spirit is saying through that prophet to the people of God of all time. And for us to see the good news of, of what the Spirit says to us of all time, we need to understand what, this, what the prophet was saying to the people in his time. Someone would come shortly after Ahaz. His name was Hezekiah. King Hezekiah becomes the king. Just a little baby at the time of Ahaz, but becomes the king who ends up leading the people back to Israel. All those high places that that Ahaz erected all these different places of worship, all those temple corners, uh, street corners that altars were built on, Hezekiah goes throughout Jerusalem, breaks them all down, shatters them, tears them apart, orders the rebuilding of the temple. As the temple's being opened up and, and cleaned out and rebuilt, and it takes weeks to do this. All the Levites on hand to, to restore the temple under Hezekiah's leadership. And as they're doing that, they discover the law again. And Hezekiah leads them back into the faithful practice. Unto us a child is born, and the first horizon of that is that in the midst of Ahaz, darkness and gloom, God has already given a child, Hezekiah, who will turn the people's hearts back to the Lord. A child, not someone of might and power who will come in and conquer Ahaz and get rid of him once for all and undo everything he's doing and only to institute their own form of wickedness. But a child. A child's been born who, who is going to lead us back to God, who is going to restore faithfulness among the people. And the good news for us today is a child has been born. 
One who doesn't operate on the world's schemes of might and power to destroy and to to herald himself. But one who was born in humility. One who's born not to exalt himself, but, but to lay down his life. To die on the behalf of the people he's come to serve. To truly set them free, not just from the earthly powers, but but from the very sin that has bound us and bound every king. God's good news in the scripture text is a child. A child is born, as the angels would say, in Bethlehem. The good news goes beyond this. It says, the government will be upon his shoulders. If you read just a few verses before this, if you recall that, it was the rod of oppression that was on the people's shoulders. The kings that had come along before them had had built up their government and their kingdom on the shoulders of the poor, on the shoulders of the foreigners who had dwelled there, on the shoulders of anyone who didn't look like them or act like them or help them to maintain their rule. Quite often, the first thing the king would do when he became king was gather his brothers around and kill them all. End any threat to the throne. Self-preservation. My kingdom will be established by my might and power, and yet, here you have this good news breaking in. The kingdom of this child... It will be on his shoulders. Instead, instead of a rod of oppression, it will be a yoke of plenty and blessing being given. You do not need to fear this king. You do not need to be afraid of this one who comes. He's coming in a way that will not oppress you, but that will serve you. The ones who wore the yokes on their shoulders were the servants. A king who serves? A, a king who's not coming to, to make a name for himself, but a king who's, who's coming to care for the people? Could it be? Do you hear the anticipation building in the people? And daring to hope again, daring to open up that door that God might actually provide someone for them who will be a blessing. Isn't that the good news in this season as we anticipate Christ's coming it's not a God who's going to oppress us but a God who comes to serve Philippians 2 became obedient even taking on the form of a servant he humbled himself not exalted himself and he's going to be called wonderful counselor a wonderful counselor? Most of the time, the kings gathered around people who could counsel them. There was never a king, since Solomon at least, who spent his wisdom on behalf of the people, who took what he had to offer and used it to serve others, to, to bring them up. And what a sharp contrast to have a king who spends himself on behalf of the people so that they can grow. A mighty God? 
and not just a human, but, but what God's promising. And this is where that, that first horizon bends into the second horizon for us. That the one who's come to be born in the flesh is actually God. There is no way the people of Israel would have attributed this statement to any earthly king. Hezekiah may have been in the first view, but they understood the moment they said, mighty God. The moment Isaiah says, mighty God, this child is mighty God, they knew the Messiah was being promised. God who was to come to dwell among them. Everything's changing. God not at a distance. God not in some foreign country that they have to chase after and find. God not someone they have to track down who seems absent and distant. But a God who's drawn so close to them that they can walk with him and talk to him. The Apostle John, as he's writing his first letter to one of the churches, ends up saying, we speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. We were with him. It was in the flesh, that opening of John's gospel. The word was God and was with God, and, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. The good news is that God was no longer going to stay out of the fray, but God was going to enter the midst of the brokenness in those places where it seemed like God had been absent. God was going to work something new. Everlasting Father. We've talked about the idea of household in, in the, that time. Uh, the father was one who, who was the patriarch of the family, but it was often two or three or four generations after him, all living on his property. And, and all of them being taken care of under his name. His responsibility being put upon them so that they dwelled in the safety of who he was. An everlasting father? Not one who would die. Not one who would leave them. Not one who there would be a squabble and a fight for who would get power next. But a father who would take care of them forever. Prince of Peace. Oh, for generations they had longed for shalom. That sense of everything being right and good. Everything having a place. Everybody flourishing together. There, there being no more violence and, and no more threat of danger from the outside. But, but peace in the land. Peace among the people. And this king, this promised king who is coming... Be a prince who operates with shalom. How different. Everything changing. Everything is being promised that it will change. And change is a good thing here. All the brokenness they had known, every reason they had been given not to trust God was going to be wiped away. And the people were going to be drawn into a place where they could trust God again. Because of Hezekiah, who was born and already coming, but more so because of the Messiah, who was to be born, who was to make all things new. 
as we look forward to Advent and to remembering Christ's birth, we're entering into this story at that same posture of the people of Israel, living in a world where we have felt that brokenness, the unshalom, the absence of God's presence, and, and looking back at Christ's birth and saying, Lord, thank you for coming. But we still long for that peace. And we long for the fullness of your shalom to be known in our relationships between parents and children, between co-workers, between siblings, between neighbors, between governments and nations. Lord, come quickly. See, our Advent exercise and our discipline of, of going through this Advent journey year after year is not just to remember what has happened but it is also to look forward to when Christ will come again. When Christ will finish that work of making all things new, when, when the effects and consequences of sin will be ripped away, and God's shalom will flourish among us all. Advent, too, has that dual horizon. That looking back to say, because Jesus Christ was born and died and rose from the dead, we are free from our sins. We are forgiven. And because he has promised to come again, we have hope and joy. Because we know the end of the story. We know that the brokenness the world experiences that we feel in our own bodies and in our relationships with one another, that we feel in our own struggles against sin. We know that that story is not the full story, but that the full story is coming. Jesus is coming. He's going to make all things new. Jesus is coming. He is going to remove all pain and sin and doubt. Jesus is coming. We can trust him. We can trust that God is good because Jesus is coming. And he's almost here. Let's pray. Lord, there may be mo no more difficult thing for us to do than to trust you. We could list a thousand reasons over a thousand times for why we shouldn't trust you. Because of the brokenness we felt, because of the brokenness we've extended. And yet, and yet you speak this good news that in Christ Jesus our sins are forgiven. That in Christ Jesus a, a new kingdom is coming. Not one ruled by fear and selfishness, but one that displays your generous character, that embodies your love, that makes your goodness known. Oh, we long for you, Lord. We long to trust you. We long to believe your good news. Help us to believe. Help us to believe that in Jesus Christ, you are changing everything. You are making all things new. May the joy of this season be ours as we remember what you've already done in him and we anticipate what you will yet do. 
as we delight and trust in you. May you shape our prayers. May you shape our prayers around this simple plea. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In Christ we pray. Amen.